0: I've got too many turning points, I don't know, but anyway, we'll we'll catch up, we'll we'll catch up. So continuing on, organelles, this is our lysosome. This is a a membranous organelle, relatively, again, compared to the other ones on the smaller side. The membrane is kind of important for the lysosomal uh, membranes. The lysosomes are described as digestive organelles. So they've got 40-50 different types of enzymes within it that are designed to basically digest all kinds of organic substances, right? So what's preventing those enzymes from just eating the lysosomal membrane, right? Well, those membranes have just again special type of lysosomal associated membrane proteins, integral membrane proteins and glycoproteins, right? They're protecting that membrane and the cell from the contents of these digestive organelles. So again, these are important for the cell. It's how the cell gets rid of uh, debris, digest, degrades stuff, can recycle stuff. We can break things down and use those amino acids and lipids and nucleic acids, again, for other stuff. Um, if it's, uh, for example, if a cell Phagocytosis something, maybe we need to use these lysosomes to to kill and digest and degrade a microbe, for example. So these are important um, organelles. If, and again, these are all called acid hydrolases. The environment, you remember your, your endosomes again, as you go from early endosomes to late endosomes to lysosomes, the pH is decreasing, they're becoming more acidic. That's the environment where these enzymes are active. So the pH of these is relatively low, it's acidic. Now there are other transporters, again um, such as your hydrogen transporters that are gonna help make that environment acidic and make make these enzymes active. So we're gonna be looking again at some cases, there are again, some clinical scenarios that you can probably think of. If these cells can't break down all these different lipids and glycolipids and proteins and stuff, what happens? They'll accumulate within the cell, right? If they accumulate, they can result in disrupting normal cell functions, cause cell damage, cell death, can result in disease processes. And there are, again, we've got 40, 50 different lysosomal enzymes. So we've got 40 or 50 different types of lysosomal storage disorders, which will be, uh, again, just looking at um, one classic example. So here's another look at some lysosomes, EM version. Again, we're seeing a couple. This is um, an early lysosome right here, L1. L2, this is a phagolysosome. Remember during phagocytosis, we created that phagosome. Once that phagosome merges with a lysosome, it's a phagolysosome or a secondary lysosome. And you can tell we've got lots of different vesicles that we see within it, okay? So this is a phagolysosome. We can also see some mitochondria, and these MBs are multivesicular bodies. So these are, again, late endosomal structures. Here's a higher magnification of some L2s. Again, we can see a number of different vesicle structures within the lysosome. You can also stain for specific um, enzymes. In this case, we're looking at a lysosome. Um, Again, looking at the acid phosphatase within this lysosome. So this also kind of brings up kind of a classic protein, trafficking protein targeting scenario. How do we get all these lysosomal enzymes into our actual organelle? We know the pathway now, right? That message is going to be translated by a ribosome. Initial peptides are going to have an ER signal sequence. It's going to go to the ER, undergo its initial folding, processing. Then it's going to go to the Golgi. In the Golgi is where some of these important targeting processes take place. So enzymes or proteins that are going to the lysosome are gonna be tagged, they're gonna be tagged in the Golgi. What are they tagged with? Different peptides are gonna be tagged with mannose-6-phosphate. That's, again, you have multiple mannose-6-phosphate on these different proteins, that's marking these proteins as lysosomal proteins. All right. That way, the Golgi, as they work their way through, can then sort those lysosomal proteins into the appropriate vesicles with the MANO6 phosphate receptor, right? So, we're taking them, we're sorting them, we're packaging them into specific vesicles so they can be targeted to the either late endosome or lysosome. So, again, this again comes up again and again. So, for example, you could have a uh, a mutation in a um, lysosomal enzyme. Uh, If it's not tagged properly with manose 6-phosphate, it's not gonna get to the lysosome. We won't be able to digest and degrade those uh, substances. They will accumulate within the cell and they can, again, disrupt cell function, cause cell damage, cell death, and cause a potentially um, disease situation. Now, There are a number of these. The first one that was really characterized was the one on the right, your Tay-Sachs disease. By both Tay and Sachs, all right? Now, again, there are lots of different types. This one's kind of significant because it was the first lysosomal storage disease characterized. And it's due to a a mutation in the hex A gene. Um, Again, this enzyme has two subunits, an alpha and a beta subunit and Tay-Sachs is caused by a mutation in the hex A part. As a result, that enzyme is not functioning and makes it to the lysosome, but it can't digest those gangliosides. They tend to accumulate in the cell and this typically affects, again, often affects neurons, nervous tissue, and these neurons become dysfunctional. They undergo programmed cell death and they die. All right, again, we start losing lots of neurons in the brain and spinal cord. These young usually becomes apparent um, during infancy, and they do not live until usually only until about three or four years old, right? Not a lot you can really do with lysosomal storage diseases. Our gene therapy techniques are not uh, super awesome yet, so we can't just go in and fix that gene yet right hopefully we can kind of do that in the future so at this point a lot of these lysosomal storage diseases are unfortunately can't be treated that well you can try enzyme replacement therapies you can try some other things but there's not always a lot you can do again there are a lot if you look in your text you'll kind of see a list of a bunch of other lysosomal storage disorders okay So we've talked about endocytosis previously. We talked about phagocytosis. These things are all coming into the cell and usually going to the lysosome for digestion and breaking things down. There's another pathway which is autophagy. Phagy means to eat, right? So autophagy means eating yourself, right? So this is where the cell can create these different membranes usually from your endoplasmic reticulum within the cytoplasm and they'll just engulf and surround big swaths of the cytoplasm and form an autophagosome. So it can bring in cytosol, it can bring in organelles, whatever it surrounds will create an autophagosome and those can be delivered to the lysosome for uh, digestion. So why would you want to do that? Again, there's different types of autophagy. This one we're talking about is macro autophagy. Again, if there's a nutrient shortage, cells can do that to, again, get amino acids and nucleic acids and lipids for use within the cell. Um, But certain um, other processes, differentiation, um, again, um, cell death is another one. You can have autophagic cell death where the cell just kind of keeps eating so much of its organelles that doesn't really function, undergoes cell death. So, um, cancer plays a part role in um, um, cancer, um, other disorders as well. So again, just one of those terms that you might might be hearing more about. Another thing, again, this is a so all those things going to the lysosome hopefully are going to be digested and degraded. Could be proteins, cytosol, organelles, whatever. Right? There are other ways to digest and break down proteins within the cell, and that is our Vr proteasome. So this is another one of those non-membranous type of important organelles. It's usually, again, characterized um, in the cytoplasm, but you could see some, uh, a different type in the nucleus. This is an enzyme complex, all right, again, proteins, again, proteins that are either short-lived or damaged or not folded properly, or again, just as part of cell signaling, not needed anymore, are tagged, tagged for destruction. So what are they tagged with? These little ubiquitin proteins, all right? Enzymes that put ubiquitin onto proteins are called ubiquitin ligases. So once a protein is tagged with ubiquitin, usually more than once, it's targeted for destruction. Okay, and again, there are medications that can target these proteasome inhibitors. Again, if you can block this process, again, you can, um, for example, for cancer treatments, you can induce cells to undergo programmed cell death. So it can be a way to get rid of these abnormally proliferating cells. Okay, I'm gonna go through these next couple slides relatively fast, they're kind of, kind of straightforward. We have other things in the cell besides organelles and cytoskeleton and proteasomes. They're often just called inclusions, okay? Some of these are pigments, and if you look at these, they're pretty straightforward, right? Pigments tend to be surrounded by a membrane. Often they're things that just didn't quite maybe get totally digested by lysosomes, and they can remain in cells, so some cells are as you guys learn more about them, really long-lived, like our cardio muscle cells. As long as we're alive, we've kind of got a set number of them. With a lot of neurons, we have them for as long as we're alive, 70, 80 years, right? So cells, these are long-lived cells. They'll often accumulate some of these pigments like lipofusion over the course of our lifespan. Um, some pigments you can see in, in other areas like hemosiderin that's a result of when you break down uh, hemoglobin, right? So we can see it in things like your spleen and in your liver where we're breaking down red blood cells. Uh, melanin we see in the skin, it's a pigment that gives us a tan and gives us our complexion, right? And we also see it in certain neurons. We can see mem- uh, other substances in the cytoplasm, things like glycogen, it's just, storage form of glucose, right? So it's in the cytoplasm. It's not necessarily um, in a certain organelle. Same with uh, lipids. Lipids can also form nice little um, droplets within the cytoplasm as a storage form of fats and other lipids. So I'll let you guys kind of go through some of these. Again, these are from your book. These dark electron-dense areas It's just glycogen within the cytoplasm. They're not any particular organelle. Lipids. Lipids by light microscopy don't fix. Well, they get washed out, right? When you do your fixation and your different dehydration steps and all that kind of stuff. So they often appear just washed out. So they look like these little empty spaces. However, if you use special fixatives, like for EM, like your osmium tetroxide, now we can keep those lipid droplets intact and they appear as these electron-dense areas. If it's an EM, here's another one. Again, these are just lipids. They're not surrounded by any um, membrane. They're not in any particular organelle. Here's some example of pigments. Again, these are sympathetic ganglion cells. If you think of your sympathetic chain, those little swellings, this is where we find cell bodies. And with, these are long-lived cells. So they have accumulated lipofusion, which is in the cytoplasm. Uh, these are neurons in the substantia nigra. These are cells that are responsible for Parkinson's disease, right? These are dopamine-producing cells. Kind of they share some, some pathway similarities. So you can see melanin in these neurons. But usually we think of melanin as our, in our skin cells. Okay, mitochondria, this is an important one. Why is it so important? Because it's energy, right? This is where we're really getting all the energy to drive all these functions that we need to do. What's really neat about it? Again, evidence suggests, again, early on in our evolutionary history, there was a symbiotic event where, again, aerobic bacteria um, was engulfed by a primitive eukaryotic cell. Why, what's some evidence for this? Mitochondria have their own DNA. Numerous copies of its own circular DNA, similar to bacterial DNA. That DNA is still active, right? It still encodes for certain genes and is transcribed by mitochondrial ribosomes. They've got some of their own transfer RNAs. And what's important about it is these genes encode for proteins or enzymes that are important in that oxidative phosphorylation pathway. So they still maintain their um, small portion of their, their own DNA, and again, their own RNAs and their own transfer RNAs. What else is unique about mitochondria? How do we inherit it? It comes from our mother. So we can also use it for lineage tracing and tracking again, migrations of humans throughout, throughout our past. Um, Again, it has its own DNA, has its own genes, can be susceptible to mitochondrial DNA damage, right? So there are mitochondrial conditions. So they're energy, or making responsible for really cranking out that ATP. So cells that are really need a lot of energy, like muscle cells, for example. These are sarcomeres, packed in here. These are mitochondria. Here's again, they have different shapes. Um, They can divide on their own. They can have different morphology depending on whether they're active or not. But cells that are really active will just be packed full of mitochondria. So we're not going to, let me back up just really quick. This is the other kind of unique feature about the mitochondria it's our other double membrane organelle, right? doesn't have a single lipid bilayer, has two. Has an outer membrane and an inner membrane that creates all these little folds or Christi. It's in the inner membrane where we find the mitochondrial products for the oxidative phosphorylation chain. So this is your NADH dehydrogenase complex, and this is your electron transport chain, and they create this proton gradient. And again, ultimately we use that proton gradient to drive this ATP synthase enzyme. All of these are mitochondrial genes. So if you have a mutation in some of these mitochondrial genes, it's gonna impact often our ability to produce ATP and again, can have a wide variety of different types of of symptoms, depending on the cell type and tissue type. But there are other, lots of other enzymes you're gonna be, and pathways you're gonna be talking about with the mitochondria. Again, with biochemistry, your citric acid cycle is in your matrix, right? There's lots of other other important things going on with your mitochondria. So I'll let you kind of review that. I, I know we're going a little fast here. Um, So mitochondrial diseases, again, are usually linked to mutations in that mitochondrial DNA. And they don't have a nucleus. They're bacterial-like, right? So any sort of oxidative damage or other damage can occur to this mitochondrial DNA. If we get mutations, again, some of these common conditions are mutations in mitochondrial genes. So, again, this... MRF is due to a mutation in the mitochondrial transfer RNA gene. We see this in uh, muscle fibers. Uh, Lieber heredity, hereditary optic neuropathy, these are due to mutations in mitochondrial genes that are responsible for, again, largely that uh, NADHD hydrogenase complex. So that thing's not working properly, those mitochondria are not gonna be producing as much ATP. So what do we do? Can we, any good treatments for mitochondrial diseases? Might've heard of one that's kind of neat recently. Anybody from the UK? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, just last fall, they had the first IVF with three donors, right? The mom, the dad, and the mitochondrial donor. So what do they do? And the father's sperm, mother's oocyte, and, uh, and the donor oocyte. So what do they do? They basically take the nucleus out of the oocyte, put it into, well, remove the oocyte that's in the other um, egg, put the mother's egg in there, but keep the donor's mitochondria there. Right? Mitochondria are inherited by your mother. So if you have a, a known mitochondrial disorder, you don't wanna pass that on, right? So you're basically using somebody else's oocyte and mitochondria and putting the mother's DNA in there. And the first child born by this method was just last fall. So that's a way of preventing some of these mitochondrial disorders from, from occurring. And it's kind of a neat, neat uh, article if you wanna review that. Okay, so our last one is the peroxisomes. Now these are also called microbodies because of their small size, and also really important. Their small size doesn't really um, say how important they are, right? Really important in um, fat metabolism, lipid metabolism, breaking down these really very long chain fatty acids. All right. Again, if there are peroxisomal disorders these long chain fatty acids will tend to accumulate in the cell, they can cause problems. They're especially important in in neurons um, because they also are important in some lipid metabolism, in particular, plasmalogens. These are a certain type of phospholipid that um, is predominant in like your myelin, myelin sheaths, the coverings of your your axons, right? The insulating part of your, your neurons. So if these proxisomal disorders are in effect, again, um, you're often gonna have symptoms um, or problems with neurons, with that tissue, with the brain. So again, we'll often, um, often really not resolve itself very well. It kind of results in kind of an early mortality, right? Usually within, again, the first couple years. Um, there's a wide spectrum of types of peroxisomal disorders. Again, sometimes they're kind of put under the heading of Zellweger syndrome. Again, but there are, sometimes they'll just call them peroxisomal disorders. So, the, if there are mutations in peroxisomal genes, they're not going to be functioning properly in the peroxisome. Or if there's a mutation in the signal sequence, then those proteins are not going to get there and not function properly. Another important function is this um, ability to basically deal with these reactive oxygen species. We were talking about the mitochondria, we're aerobic organisms, We we need oxygen, we're breathing oxygen, we need it to make ATP, but it also creates a lot of these oxygen radicals. That's not good for proteins, for DNA, for lipids, it causes damage. So peroxisomes also with other enzymes like catalase can deal with it, break down those um, toxic oxygen radicals and change them into things like oxygen and water. So, small size, but some especially important important roles. All right. So let's finish this this uh, organelle one. All right, so we're thinking electron transport chain, NADH, dehydrogenase complex, or ATP synthase. We should be thinking that inner membrane. These are mitochondrial genes producing mitochondrial proteins that are being inserted into the inner membrane. So if you're thinking of your protein trafficking, what path are are proteins destined for the peroxisomes on? So we've talked about two pathways, right? We had the ER ER-Golgi pathway And then we, otherwise known as your membrane-bound organelles. And then you had your free ribosomes, right? These are free ribosomes producing a protein that has a proxisomal signaling sequence on it. Okay. So good, I finally gave you a question that made you think, made you think a little bit. okay so this one i'll have to learn That's just that there's too many slides in that in that previous previous packet right this one only has about 20 some so i think we'll still be on on track to be done on time so in this one we're going to be continuing and we're going to be looking at our cytoskeleton all right again your objectives and so what are some of these cytoskeletal structures we got three big ones. You got your actin microfilaments, you got your intermediate filaments, and your microtubules. Really important is in terms of a lot of cells that we're going to be looking at. I've also got a clicker here for you really early on. This is a pretest. <laughs> You can do a really quick scan of your notes, but don't worry about it. Right? It doesn't matter if you get it right or wrong. All right. <laughs> uh, I didn't want I didn't want you to look at it yet. So all right. <laughs> so. We'll, We'll come back to it later, I'll do it again, see if we can up that percentage. Okay, so here's our big, um, our big to-do list for today. Actin, microtubules, intermediate filaments. We identify them, what's their structure, what's their function, or functions, right? What are some clinical scenarios? They're all cytoskeletons, so we should, should be thinking there's definitely some structural support, but it just really depends, right? They have a lot of different um, um, functions, all right? So starting with our microtubules. Again, these, as the name suggests, these are tubular. They are rigid, hollow, relatively straight structures. They are non-branching. They're made up of alpha and beta tubulin. that form protofilaments. 13 of these protofilaments come together and form this tubular structure. There's a... They are polar. That means they have a minus end and a plus end. In this particular slide, all these green things are microtubules. This red thing is what they call the the centrosome, all right? This is where the microtubules are anchored or nucleated. So this is the minus end. They're anchored at the minus end. The plus end goes out to the cell periphery, all right? Lots of functions. These microtubules are these straight tubular tracks they act like railroad tracks, so they're involved in intracellular transport. All those vesicles we've been talking about, they're transported along these tracks. There are motor proteins like little railroad cars that walk along these tracks, and they bring vesicles with them, they bring organelles with them, they bring other things with them, right? So that's how the cell moves things around um, its cytoplasm. Sometimes cells will have structures called cilia, Um, We'll talk about these in more detail when we talk about epithelium and going forward. But that's for motility. Again, microtubules with motor proteins allows us for movement. So we can move cilia and create a synchronous movement to move things like mucus from your respiratory tract and cough it up or swallow it. It's also in flagella. So if you're a spermatozoa, the tail of your flagella has a core of microtubules with motor proteins. So we can get motility and movement of um, those spermatozoa. During mitosis, we need microtubules. We need to create these mitotic spindles. So they'll come out, they'll attach to your uh, sister chromatids, and then pull them to the opposite poles. So lots of important functions with microtubules. Centrioles. this is also often described as a non-membranous organelle. It's actually made up of tubulin alpha and beta tubulin. There's two of them, and again, if you look, it's a little triplet. So each one of these is a microtubule. So we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine of these triplets. As we'll see later, this is a nine plus zero. There's two of them. They're kind of perpendicular to each other, and this thing here we can see a, a EM of them. These are duplicated, so this is a cell that's going to undergo cell division. We've got one centriole here and one centriole over here. They're going to migrate to opposite poles, and then we're going to nucleate those microtubules. These form the core of centrosomes, which, again, are microtubule organizing centers. They form basal bodies, which are important when we anchor cilia, and are important when we have stromatozoa being developed. So here's another look at the centrosome. Centrosome is centrioles plus a lot of other proteins. Creates a matrix. One of these especially important proteins is gamma tubulin. Forms these little ring structures. This is what's thought to help anchor or nucleate these microtubules at the minus end. So this is the minus end by the centrosome. As we work our way out to the periphery, this is the plus end. It's important for certain proteins, different families of proteins. Some walk in the plus direction, some walk in the minus direction. All right? So, centrosomes anchor or nucleate microtubules. These are dynamic structures, right? Um, Often described as um, um, kind of unstable in some cases. They're just going to kind of shoot out and unless there's other proteins stabilizing them, they'll just depolymerize again, right? So, they're dynamically inst- unstable or dynamic instability. But there are other proteins, microtubule associated proteins, that can help make them more stable, right? So, if they come in contact with these microtubule associated proteins, they will be more sta- steady and stable. Obviously, in cilia and flagella, they are more stable, right? They're more um, steady, they're not as transient. But I think your text gave it a good description. They called it, like, um, you probably seen those nature videos of, like, the chameleons when they shoot their tongue, tongue out and they grab something and it snaps back. Uh, that seemed, like, kind of appropriate. So these microtubules will shoot out in a straight direction, and if they're stabilized, they'll, they'll stay there. If they're not, they'll deplymerize, right? So it's an ongoing thing. They'll always be shooting these things out. This process is energy dependent. We need GTP, we need alpha-beta tubulin. Again, when it's bound to GTP, it'll polymerize. It'll form this GTP cap. Once it depolymerizes, sorry, hydrolyzes, if it's not stabilized by different proteins, that will just depolymerize, all right? Some of these are gonna come up again and again. You may have heard of tau proteins. These are proteins that help stabilize microtubules. It's um, been linked with Alzheimer's and neurons. If they get hyperphosphorylated, they can uh, disassociate from microtubules and form these little tangles, right? Um, if they're not stabilizing microtubules, that means microtubules aren't super stable. It means we can't transport anterograde and retrograde vesicles in neurons, right? It means neurons aren't functioning properly. It means that tissue's not functioning properly and result in neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's. So these will come up again and again. So here's an EM looking at it. Hopefully we can identify our centrosome or at least our centrioles. Again, this one's kind of coming out of the plane at us and this one's perpendicular. So this is your centrosome. And if we look, we can see some of these that are still being stabilized, looks like we can see this one shooting out this way, maybe another one that's coming this way. These are the microtubules, so they're, again, these straight, kind of long, rigid tubular structures. There are compounds, there are substances that target microtubules, some of them we use for treating uh, different types of tumors or cancers. Why is that, what's a cancer? unregulated, uncontrolled cellular proliferation, cell division. We need microtubules for cell division. If we shut it down, we can hopefully make these cells go under programmed cell death. So there are lots of compounds that target microtubules. As we said, there are motors that walk along microtubules. The dynein family goes in the minus end. So if you're a neuron and your axon is way out there, you want to get something back to the cell body, you need dynein motors to walk in the minus direction. Right? There are two types of dynein families, the cytoplasmic ones, which we just talked about, and then the ones we see in cilia. These are called your axonemal. These are found in cilia and flagella. All right? They still go in the same minus direction. So cytoplasmic, bind vesicles, they combine organelles, and just kind of walk along the surface of these tubules. Mesin is the other family. It walks in the positive direction. So again, it can bind other microtubules or it can bind vesicles, bind organelles. And if there's energy, these things will, again, walk along the surface of these microtubules. We'll be looking at these again when we talk about epithelium. Again, cilia, the Key feature we want to emphasize today is they are formed by microtubules. They have a core of microtubules, a nine plus two core. And with motor proteins, it allows for bending and movement. Here's another look again. um, Here's if you do a cross section through here, it's gonna look like this, a nine plus two arrangement with dynein, Arms. These are the dynein motors that are gonna bind to adjacent microtubules and walk in the minus direction. We're gonna look at these in more detail when we do epithelium in just the very near future. Some cells have what's called a primary cilia. Some say almost all cells have a primary cilia. It's important in a a few different ways though. During development, sometimes this primary cilia is called a nodal cilia and it plays a role in left and right symmetry, right and left sides of the body. Um, Certain cells have an active um, primary cilia, particularly tubule cells of your kidney, right? Has little fluid flowing through it, and these act as little mechanoreceptors, right? As fluid is flowing by, this primary cilia will, will bend, and as it bends, it'll open up, for example, calcium channels like your polycystin um, two channels, right? So some of the big um, uh, basic science roles of primary cilia were first described in, in these kidney tubule cells where they were looking at primary cilia for other reasons and then identified that there were mutations in these polycystin genes, which are little transporters for calcium located in the primary cilia. So as the fluid flows, It'll bend and cause those channels to open. Um, if they're mutated, you'll get poly, you'll get these cysts forming all over your, your kidneys. All right, intermediate filaments. This is, um, again, kind of a, a general review of it. There are lots of different types of intermediate filaments, as we'll see in the next slide. In this particular image, all these red um, cable like, rope like structures. Spanning the cell are our intermediate filaments. Green is acting again. This is our nucleus. Think of these as big cables that are kind of spanning the cell. right? So they're going to provide structural support and provide some tensile or uh, shearing protection um, and structural support for the cell. As we'll see, we'll talk about those again when we talk about our cell-to-cell junctions. There are certain types of cell-to-cell and cell-to-matrix junctions that these things are attaching to, right? So they're think of like cables on a suspensory bridge or those kind of things where they're spanning large swaths of the cytoplasm to kind of provide support to these um, membranes. And there are lots of different types. So as we go forward, when we talk about epithelium, we'll be talking about keratins or cytokeratins. When we talk about muscle, we'll be talking about vimentin type or desmin. Right? When we talk about um, um, neurons, we'll be talking about neurofilaments. When we talk about the nucleus, we're talking about lamins. Right. So these things are gonna keep coming up. They're, again, slightly different. Basically, what's different from the other cytoskeleton is they're not polar, right? We're just getting protein monomers coming together to form dimers, dimers are forming tetramers, and they're coming together to form these um, octamers, right? And form these rope-like structures. And that's, again, we'll be spending more time with those as we go. So the last one, and also a really important one, is the actin filaments. Also called microfilaments because they're the smallest, right? They are polarized. They have a minus end. They have a plus end. They're made up of actin, right? G-actin, G-actin is the globular actin. When it comes together, it forms a filament, which is F-actin. And our most simple uh, filaments is almost just two strands or two filaments that are kind of wrapped around each other. This is energy dependent and requires ATP to polymerize or otherwise make it grow, right? These are also dynamic unless we have proteins holding them in place and stabilizing them. They will undergo what's called treadmilling where they'll disassemble at the back, reassemble at the front and just kind of keep treadmilling along. Really important, it supports the plasma membrane. It's associated with a number of junctions again when we talk about epithelium in just a few days we're going to be talking about actin filaments we'll be talking about some of these um, microvilli and stereocilia again in more detail we want to end today by really emphasizing the role of actin in cell motility and how we need actin to polymerize for cells to move through our body so that's where we're gonna jump to um, I just want to Throw this out there. There are, if you happen to be a mycologist or an amateur mycologist, be careful what mushrooms you pick and eat, right? There are toxins in mushrooms which target, for our purposes today, actin microfilaments. These phallotoxins are phalloidin, okay? We use this in research, and we attach little fluorescent molecules to it so we can study actin filaments. But there are lots of other toxins in these Fungi in these um, little death caps that are toxic. So just to be clear, some people get this confused. Floydin is toxic. We use it to treat cells. Again, binds to actin, can disrupt actin. But it's not usually what's toxic when you eat it. Okay, There are other toxins in there called amata toxins that are able to pass across your your epithelial lining of your GI tract and get absorbed by cells and they are the ones that are responsible for the death Okay, in most cases. However, if you inject in into an animal, that is gonna be toxic too, right? But it doesn't cross the the GI barrier. It doesn't get absorbed. It's the manatoxins. okay? So you guys will be talking about that in biochemistry. Just throwing it out there because I knew that some other people got confused with that previously but they are, they are toxic and result in death usually within a week. Okay, these are structures that have a core of actin. We're gonna be talking about these when we look at epithelium in just a few days. So we'll come back to these. Microvilli, stereocilia, just for reference, these really should be called stereovilli. People, students get these mixed up. They think cilia, they think microtubules. And you would be right. Stereocilia, though, are actin. Their core is formed with microfilaments or actin filaments. And they tend to just be really long microvilli. <laughs> just like microtubules had motors, actin also has motors. The motor family for actin is the myosin family. And you guys will be spending time with this when you get to muscle especially, but all cells have myosin in it. This is a muscle cell again. This is a striated muscle. It's made up of thin filaments of actin and thick filaments, which is myosin. And these heads are the motor heads, all right? So they bind to actin, have a conformational change. That's what's responsible for us to contract muscles, all right? Also for our heart, but also in smooth muscle, all right? So you guys will be coming back to that. We're not getting into all of that today. Okay, so I'm gonna kind of wrap things up by finishing with cell movement. Cell movement is dependent on actin polymerization. We need actin and ATP um, to push this cell forward. So this is a really neat video. It's from from the 50s, but this is a neutrophil. And you can watch it, these are all blood cells, and there's a, I think it's a staphylococcus bacteria, and it basically chases it around that cover slip. So if you haven't watched it, watch it and see if you can identify some of these big cellular structures that we're gonna be identifying really briefly here. So this is a complex process, but we can break it down into a couple of basic steps. The big one, of course, for our purposes today is this idea of protrusion. To push that leading edge of the cell ahead, that is the part that's dependent on actin polymerization. So we can't push or protrude that plasma membrane unless we have the actin cytoskeleton functioning properly. And there's other signaling pathways and um, binding proteins and um, other things that play a role. So all types of cellular protrusions are due to actin polymerization. So we can shoot out just a single kind of finger-like process, which is a phyllopodia. We've already talked about pseudopodia, when we're engulfing or phagocytosing cells or debris. Or in the case of movement, it's lamellipodia. So lamellipodia are these ruffle-like structures. Again, filopodia are these finger-like structures. All of that is due to actin polymerization, pushing that membrane out. And here's just how that actually looks. These are actin filaments and treadmilling. So they're disassembling at the back and polymerizing at the leading edge of these cells. So here's another another look at that. This is the lamellipodia, this is the leading edge this is where we're going to have this um, really dense meshwork and our actin-related proteins. So if you'd zoom in on this, it would look something like this, right? All these different branching, polymerizing actin filaments. Here it is in cartoon form, right? Looking at this leading edge or lamellipodia. That's the front of the cell, so it's coming, moving in this direction, right? So to finish things up, this is a cell type you're going to be talking about when you get to blood and white blood cells. It's the neutrophil. It is one of the first responders to an infection or inflammatory response. It's a, it goes and it kills and it targets and it phagocytoses bacteria and that sort of thing. Right? It's normally found in the blood vessels though. So to get to the tissue, it has to exit. Right? And you'll come back and you'll spend time talking about these integrins and selectins and all of that. What we're interested in today is how does it actually move, right? So once it becomes plated or bound to the wall, this is a blood vessel, it's gonna have a compromise, it's gonna squeeze in between endothelial cells, so it's gonna create this little pseudopod and exit, right? So it's exiting that blood vessel and it's entering that connective tissue Once it's in that connective tissue, it can then move by chemotaxis, by protrusion and attachment and contraction to get to that site of inflammation. So here's a little time lapse and here's how we're gonna end today. So this is early, this is a little bit later, and this is a little bit later after that. So what we're looking at, these are blood vessels. all right. So, and this is the connective tissue on the outside. You guys will be coming back to it later. So it's this, you can look at these these cells with these little lobulated nuclei are neutrophils. They're bound to the endothelial cells at this stage. There's inflammation somewhere out here that's caused them to get stuck on the, on the endothelial cells. They're gonna extend that pseudopod in between endothelial cells and exit that blood vessel. So now all these neutrophils have gone from inside the vessel, outside the vessel, right? Now they're going to respond to those uh, histamine and other um, chemotactic stimuli to migrate out into that connective tissue where that site of that inflammation is, right? And hopefully they'll eat and digest and kill and degrade those bacteria, for example, all right? Don't worry about it. You're gonna be coming back and spending more quality time on those neutrophils. So this is our 100 percenter today, right? Because we've already did the pretest, so we should get a hundred percent on this one, I'm hoping. So again, I know we went a little fast through some of that stuff. So if you have any questions, don't hesitate to let me know. Um, I'll be with you again tomorrow, so if something comes up, you can talk to me then, too. So. Nice, good job, good job you guys.